right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the No Laying Up Podcast, a double episode week. It is Book SCN. Alan Shipnuck is here to talk about his unauthorized biography of Phil Mickelson, which was just a roaring read. It was fantastic. If you, You'll be able to tell very quickly uh, in the course of this interview how much I enjoyed the book and uh, very much encouraged that you go out and get it. It is. Uh, it met the hype, lived up to everything I thought it would be. It's a great tale of, of his career. And uh, again, we talk about all that. I don't need to spoil this interview, which also spoils some of the book. Go check it out. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. You can monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback from Whoop. Got back from my U.S. Open locals uh, yesterday. was in a crappy mood. Just felt more exhausted than I think I can ever remember feeling uh, at any point here this year. Looked at my, at my Whoop. 20.3 strain for the day. Didn't get enough sleep the day before. I was about four hours behind in sleep debt. I was like, hmm, that would probably explain things. I'm glad I didn't see that before the qualifier. It didn't go very well anyways. No big deal. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features a smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed, ready to take on the day. The all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months of membership left on your account, you can upgrade now. Get the 4.0 for free. And right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code NLU15 at checkout. Go to Whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter NLU15 at checkout to save Save 15%. Let's get to Alan Shipnuck. Well, I don't know uh, where this really starts when I say what have the last few months been like, but I think I mean sometime around the, you know, the time that you, you kind of shook the golf world uh, a little bit with, with something. You're a teaser for this book that you posted, I believe, back in February. But So when I say what have the few, uh, last few months been like, where does that start? And then, yeah, what have they been like? <laughs> They've been intense. I mean, for sure that you ordinarily would not drop an excerpt that far out from publication date, but that the Saudi stuff was really coming to a boil. I mean, I was hearing from a lot of people in the game that they were days away from making the announcement of what the tour was going to look like and who might be involved and all of that. And the biggest question for over a year in, in professional golf was what does Phil want, you know, and really nobody knew as far among professional typists, except for me. And and we could have saved all that for the book, but it sort of felt like, I don't know, malpractice. Like, you know, that's what Bob Woodward does. You know, he sits on things and he saves them for publication. And uh, I guess that that's one way of doing it. But I just felt like my ultimate job is, is as a truth teller and, you know, my allegiance is to the readers. And this was such an important piece of the puzzle where, where Phil fit into all these different negotiations, secret and otherwise. And uh, he's working both sides of the street and, even with his, his very strong misgivings and was like, you know what, we just got to release this to the world. And so it took some convincing with the publisher because they're like, man, this, this we're still three months out from, from when the book drops, but I just felt an obligation, you know, like I'm, I'm not one to, to sit on something that big. And so, um, so yeah, once, once that, that excerpt hit and then obviously Phil went into exile and it's been, it's, it's definitely affected my sleep. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of energy around this. There's a lot of, a lot of jitters 
you know, as we're taping this, we still don't know if Phil's going to even show up in Tulsa. Like, it's just incredible how this whole thing has, has played out. And, um, you know, no reporter ever wants to be the story. Like that's kind of one of the, the, the unwritten rules in the job is just uh, you don't want to be the center of the story. And so it's, it's been uncomfortable as this, as this has turned out. And, uh, but I don't know, I, I don't have any regrets. It, it's just, but it, to answer your question, it's, it's been a lot. Well, it just seems like this was kind of thrust on you in a way, like you are writing this book and I, and I want you to kind of lay out the timeline of that and your, your efforts to get Phil involved in it and the timing of that phone call. And, and from that, you know, try as best as you can to help me understand what he was trying to accomplish with this phone call. And for the listeners sake that aren't as familiar with journalistic practices, what off the record means, how that is an agreement between two people uh, to be off the record and not something somebody can claim afterwards. And, you know, you hearing these quotes and also thinking like, does he know this is on the record? That whole process, explain that all to me. Yeah, there's so much there. I mean, sometimes I kind of wish Phil had never called me and <laughs> it would have changed the last chapter of the book, but not the, you know, the 18 or 19 that precede it. And, you know, my goal was to write a really fun, lively, breezy, anecdotal book about this incredibly colorful character who's had a big life. And I knew as I plunged into the reporting, you know, almost two years ago now that there would undoubtedly be some juicy bits. I didn't really know what they would be, but Phil's been mixed up in so many controversies through the years and to, to really tunnel deep into his world, I was going to learn some stuff, but I never imagined it would, it would mushroom into, into this. And, um, and, you know, it's also, I'm glad the book people are, you know, are finally going to get to read it in its totality because I think it's a very fair and balanced look at, at a really complex person. And let me pause just for one second here to, to, yeah. to, to sign, you know, sign on to that because it makes your, the excerpt that is, that was published, it makes way more sense in the full context of the book, right? It is a up and down ride of this guy's life, the gambles he's taken, the personality he's taken on. And you read that chapter and it almost, it fits in, right? It is not, and I know you've said this too, it's not a salacious detail of Phil's life. It's not a tabloid-like reporting. It is a very fun read. And we're going to get into some of that part, but I just wanted to pause to, to kind of put some, uh, put some conviction behind that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Solly. And so it's just been... It, it's just taken on a life of its own and which I have some misgivings about, but you know, when we were talking about excerpts, I said, well, what, how about an excerpt that like gets in all of Phil's philanthropy and, and all his good guy virtues and, you know, a publisher, my agent's like, nobody's going to read about that. Nobody's <laughs> going to care. And unfortunately that's the world we live in where the there's, it's so hard to cut through the clutter and to get people to pay attention. And uh, you know, the traditional publishing model is dead. You know, no one goes on a big book tour anymore. Uh, Simon Schuster has like one publicist for a million different authors. Like you kind of have to create your own publicity now. Uh, there's no, not even any bookstores you can go to after the pandemic. Right. So it's just like, so naturally the excerpts tend to be the most explosive stuff, but that's not the overall tone of the book. And um, so um, it's just a relief that now people can, can read the whole thing and, and they'll get that. But I'm, so yeah, I mean, to go back to your question, I went to Phil face to face three times throughout this whole process and asked him if he would sit down for interviews for the book. And he molded over and eventually he said no. And that, you know, that's fine. That's his prerogative. He was really obsessed with this idea. He didn't want it to be an authorized biography and authorized versus unauthorized is, is a nuanced thing as well, because 
you know, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, they always sat with their biographers. You know, they, they saw the value in telling their side of every story and putting their spin on everything. And there's also a human element. You know, you, if you're, if you're the, if you're the, the athlete and you give the writer your time, then you might be able to soften them up in some way. And so they understood that, um, you know, Tiger's taking the opposite approach. He just slams the shutters down and, and as many books as it have been written about him, he's never participated. And I think Phil was going back and forth on how he wanted to play it. He ultimately said no. And that was fine. I've had so much access to Phil through the years and the people around him. I had a ton of material. It would have been great to sit down and have a bunch of long interviews with him because he's a great storyteller. And he's, he's a, it's like a high wire act when you're really interviewing Phil because he's just all over the place. But, but also um, if you are participating and it gives off the, you know, the idea that it is an authorized version of it, then it makes it look like anything else you write in there is also signed off on him. Is that or by him? Is that, is that a, something they weigh as well? Yeah, it, it's complex. And then, then you have like an official auto, autobiography where it's, it's a business partnership and the writer and the subject share in the proceeds and that editorial control. Like that was never going to happen, right. but that was Phil's stance. And, you know, we talked at the, the PGA at Harding Park. We talked to Torrey Pines, talked to Pebble Beach. This was over a matter of, you know, six months when, when I approached him and he turned me down. So that was fine. I, I just plunged into writing the book and, you know, fast forward 10 months, it's, it's Thanksgiving of 21. And, you know, the book is actually due December 1st. I think I'm in the home stretch and Phil texts me and says, can we talk? I was like, yeah, great. Of course. And I'm stoked. And he calls me up and he just, he starts going. I mean, this guy was already, he went zero to 60 in about one sentence. And, you know, his lawyer had previously reached out to me. And this is a whole other weird part of the book where the lawyer wanted to hire me as a consultant as Phil was gearing up to take on the tour for his media rights, which of course I said no instantly because that's a massive conflict of interest. Yeah. I can't take Phil's money while I'm writing about Phil. Like they'd even make that offer was utterly bizarre. But so I knew that the I knew that this was the background. He wanted to talk about media rights, and which sounded really boring. You know, I would have preferred to talk to him about Wingfoot, but you take what you can get in this scenario. And so, to your question, like on or off the record. I mean, when someone wants to go off the record, they have to say it and I have to consent to it. I mean, it, it is a, you know, it's an agreement. And in the context of this book, everyone wanted to tell me everything, both Phil's fans and his, his supporters and his detractors. And I had so many ornate agreements with different people about what could be used, how it could be sourced. You know, someone that Phil has a gambling history with told me something that was so explosive and would have been international headlines, but it was off the record and I couldn't use it because I always honor those agreements. And, and you know this from your own life, like Chris, like it can be a dance, right? Like if, if you're at the driving range and a pro walks by who your buddies with and you're just bullshitting and they say, hey man, did you hear that, you know, player X got in a fist fight with his caddy? You're like, oh damn, really? You're not really conducting an official interview. And so can you use that or not? I mean, it becomes a gray area. And in that scenario, you might say, oh, hey, I'd love to talk about that, write about that. Can, can I use that? And they'll say, yeah, but don't use my name or, okay, but let me, they'll clean it up a little bit and give you something a little more official. And, and that, that kind of thing happens all the time in sports writing. It's very contextual, right? Like you're not, it's not, it's not an official interview. You're just hanging out. And if you blow that, you've lost that contact probably forever right you know they're yeah. not going to share any information with you off you know right even if it's if they even if they don't say off the record there's a pl plenty of guys that will come up and say you have this as well will say something and you just like inherently know I, I that's not to use now i think what you're getting ready to say is in the context of writing this book and you asking him multiple times for an interview and he calls you up to talk 
that is a very different scenario. Very different scenario. I mean, I've I've been begging him to speak to me for this book over and over. I've talked to everyone in his orbit. You know, his, I reached out to his high school girlfriend. I've gotten his college teammates, his family, swing coaches. Like Phil knows I am writing this book. He's nervous about it. His lawyer is trying to co-opt me. Like this book is happening and there's an Amazon listing for it. You know, like, and when we get on the phone, he asks me when the book's coming out. Like this is we are talking because of this book and only because of this book. And every single thing he says is going straight into the book, unless we agree otherwise, and we hash it out. And he never said anything to that effect. And, you know, I guess if you want to second guess anything in this whole process, like I could have said, gee, Phil, are, are you sure you want to say that? But I don't really feel like, you know, it's my responsibility to provide guardrails for Phil. He called me. You know, he wanted to tell me this stuff. He's done and, this for how many years? Like he has, yeah. this is not a rookie in doing media, right? Exactly. I didn't surprise him in the men's room. You know, he called me. And the other thing to understand about Phil is he never opens his mouth without an agenda. He is a very smooth operator. And I go into great detail in the book about the ways that he's, he's charmed the media and he's bullied them and he's manipulated them and he's wooed them. And, you know, Phil is very cagey. And so... The idea that that he was surprised by any of this is nonsensical. So you asked, what, what do I think his motivations were? Well, there's a few. I mean, when he inquired when the book was coming out, I said, you know, May 17th, Tuesday, the PGA Championship week. And at that point, you know, in his mind, the Saudi stuff is going to be done and dusted. You know, it's already been announced. You know, the, the first tournament was on the horizon. Like, decisions were going to be made. And so I believe that this was his way of for posterity, recording his thoughts and his beliefs about the whole situation that, yes, I know the Saudis are bad guys. Yes, I know they, they, they commit these atrocities, but this is just business. And at the same time, he's working both sides of the street. So if he goes to, if he goes to Saudi Arabia, the tour, then and fans are outraged, he's kind of wing at them saying, I know, I get it. I get it, guys, but it's okay. Like, this is just business. And if he if it, that blows up and he winds up going back to the PGA Tour and pledging his fealty, which could have looked like a political defeat for him, he's told me about all his, his battles with Jay Monahan and all the concessions he's extracted and all his little victories. And so he's kind of covered either way. But is he, if he goes and plays you know, with the Saudis after calling them scary motherfuckers, how does that play out for him? That's the part that's like the only way it makes sense is if he truly never meant to be in business with them, was only using them as leverage. And I'm giving you this wink six months in advance. So when this book comes out, how smart am I going to look for having transformed the PGA Tour, which is such an unnecessary risk to take? I know. I, I agree with that. And it, but that's that's Phil. I mean, you know, in his his non-apology apology that he released after the excerpt, like he he said, you know, the words I used were reckless. And like that's part of the fun for him. He's an adrenaline junkie. Like anyone who's watched him play golf knows that. Like he needs the juice. He needs that 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 feeling. And I think part of him enjoyed, like he's telling me stuff that is really explosive. And I think he was, I think he was enjoying it. Like his his tone on the on the phone was very like. I don't know if giddy is the right word, but he was, he was enjoying it. And, and I mean, you know, this from when, when you're interviewing people, sometimes they get going and they get excited and, and they hear their own voice. They, they take it farther than they mean to. And that just may be what happened. Hmm. And again, I, I, it's not my job to, to, to stop him at the edge of the cliff. 
you know, no, he's walked to, to the precipice of his own volition. He's looked down and he's seen the water. He's like, fuck it. I'm going to jump. And you know, I'm just there to watch. So I, I'm not an active participant. I'm not the lifeguard. I'm not the referee. Like I'm the stenographer. Like he, tell me what you want to tell me. And there's other reporters who might look at it differently and they might have a different opinion of that. And that's valid. You know, I, I thought you had a, a very thoughtful discussion with Bob Herrig on this very topic. And, you know, he came at it from a slightly different perspective and, and that's fine. And it, um, it's, it's, it becomes a judgment call. And, um, but in, you know, in, in, given the context here, him calling me the, the multiple efforts I'd made to talk to him, like, Phil was saying what he wanted to say. He wanted to inform my thinking. He wanted to inform the readers. And now, did he get a little carried away? Quite possibly, but that that's on him, not me. And like, if I'm talking to somebody who's doing a magazine article or something, there are many times in that where I'll be like, all right, you can't use this, but like, hey, you may want to follow up on this part. Like, I, I can't speak to that. That's not my story, but I heard something about this. And like, you know, inherently know when to take pauses to be like, hey, this is not for whatever you would use it for. And, uh, but to, to that point of him, like needing some juice on the line, I want you to tell the story from the book about, I believe it was something Steve Loy had, had said or, or what, someone close to him about, he would turn down a speaking engagement hypothetically. Uh, you, just, without spoiling, it, can you tell that that uh, that part of the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was uh, his college buddy Rob Mangini, and you know, talking about how Phil, where, where the gambling comes into into his life, and you know, his friend saying it's not really about the money because there's times where Phil has a day off and he's a he's offered you know, a huge corporate gig. And, you know, Rob quoted this, this figure $500,000 and Phil will turn it down saying, I want to be with my family. But if I'm hanging out at Whisper Rock and some member wants to play him for 10 K I'll, I'll call up Phil and tell him and he'll jump in his plane. And even though he's spending, you know, a lot more than $10,000 on the fuel and the pilots, like he just needs the action. He, need, he needs the energy around it. And, you know, Stuart Sink had a great little monologue in, in the book too. He's like, you know, Phil's an all-time juice guy. Like he needs the juice and everything he does. And it's the needling is juice. The betting is juice. Vegas is juice. Like talking trash about Tiger is juice. And I think that's one of the most insightful quotes in, in, among a, a lot of really interesting thoughts in this book is like, if you look at, at Phil in that context, a, a lot of his behavior, which can be a little quizzical, makes sense. And I think it's even part of this very fraught phone call with me. And I will say like, he could have called any reporter on the planet right, the one if he wanted book. to express... <laughs> his innermost feelings about Saudi Arabia. He could have called you. He could have called Michael Bamberger, whatever. He called the one motherfucker who's writing his biography. <laughs> it's mind boggling. Like even for me, I'm baffled. I'm baffled. And like, I know he was trying to play me like a fiddle and I know he had his, 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 his little hidden agendas and all that, but it still is. And I mean, there's times I just shake my head. I can't believe that happened. And it completely rocked my world too, because like now I'm sitting on this, this incredibly interesting, explosive information that's very germane to this, this very complicated moment, professional golf. I have like a fiduciary like duty to, to, to put this out into the world. And it's changed the whole feeling about this book. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a, but it tells you who Phil is and, and it's just, <laughs> but it's still baffling to me. It really is. Well, it's ironic too, because I'm guessing that over the course of reporting on this book, you were told many things that for, for whatever reason are not making it into the book, whether you were not given permission to make it into the book or whatnot. 
And then the one, the juiciest thing about what goes in, comes from the man himself. The reason why, you know, these people would, would give you these off the record stories would be kind of fearing wrath for Phil or feel, feeling like they're, you know, giving away something they should for Phil. And then Phil just straight up gives it to you himself. It's just, it, uh, I know. it's amazing. Do you have any sense of what, how things have been with Phil since his kind of step away from golf? You know, what are things like on the home front? What his financial situation look like? Whether he's going forward with live stuff, any insight on any of that? Yeah, there's there's so many mysteries. I was getting reports like you know I have a friend who's a member at the Yellowstone Club, and I get a call from them. You know, Phil's Phil's hiding out up here. He's got like a ZZ Top beard, and um, you know, I get another call. He he just sneaked into the Callaway Performance Center. His hair's down to his his shoulders. Like you know, he's like turned into Yeti. You know, he's like these these sightings of this this hairy, you know, mysterious figure. But we did actually on uh, Fire Pit collective uh on our on our twitter handle someone sent us this paparazzi video of him in in uh, san diego making a pretty um, ferocious golf swing and he did have a little beard his hair was a normal length looked like he'd put on a little weight which you know so i think exaggerate you know reports of his demise were a little exaggerated but you know for sure i become this clearinghouse for phil rumors and innuendo and gossip people are constantly calling me and writing me some are, com are complete social media randos. Some are very wired in members of the golf community. So at this point, I don't know what to believe. I've heard it all. Um, I will say, you know, that last paragraph in his, in his public statement from February when saying I haven't, I've let a lot of people down and I, I need to become a better man. And that to me was a lot bigger than Saudi Arabia. And that transcended um the current moment and it felt like he was hinting at some some deeper issues uh, we can all speculate what they are no one really knows except for perhaps phil and amy and maybe a couple of other people very close to them whether when he returns to public life he's he's going to talk you know make some declarations you know we'll see it's going to be utterly fascinating and for you know nine days from the pj championship to not know if if he's you know the first round of the pj championship to not know if he's going to defend after the a performance for the ages and in this crowning moment in his career, it's, it's like very unsettling and weird. And I know everyone in the game feels that I feel that acutely because obviously I've, I've had some role in it. Uh, and so I've heard a lot of things. I don't know what to believe anymore. I'm, I'm as, as, as interested and eager to, to find out, you know, Phil's next move as everybody else. A quick break to check in with our friends at Roback. I was absolutely stoked to see a fresh box on the front porch of the Kill House. Ripped it open, found a bunch of polos, performance Q-zips, performance hoodies from Roback. We have had a great experience with them, and after wearing them for a while, we can confidently say it's one of the best fits we've ever seen. First, their performance polos fit so much better than your typical boxy polos. Their four-way stretch is next level. The material super soft while staying wrinkle-free. The founders went through over 20 iterations of the collar alone to ensure it keeps its shape but doesn't get in the way of your golf swing. Second, the performance Q-zips are a game-changer. They're soft. You'll be hitting darts in these things all day long. They are the definition of versatile and perfect for a spring morning on the course. And lastly, Robo performance hoodies are the stretchiest softest hoodies in golf they may even be the softest most comfortable performance hoodie on the entire market they are popping up everywhere all over the nfl all over college football i saw them on the golf course in my qualifier uh this past monday roback has been gaining traction big time so next time you see someone rocking the roback dog logo give them a subtle nod you know they get it 
You can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's Roback, R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off all polos, Q-zips, and hoodies, and tees with code NLU. They just dropped new hoodies and Q-zips. Perfect for the spring. Go check them out and start 2022 off with some Roback. Let's get back to Alan Shipnuck. If I can give a, uh, a testament to the book as well, it is in the very beginning, it, uh, it, it seems like you, you've, you accumulated of everyone you interviewed. It seemed like you asked the question, what's your best Phil story? And there's a whole chapter in there of just like alternating stories. And you finish one of them. You're like, man, Phil is the best that I love that guy. You finish the next story and you're like, man, Phil is the worst. Like I would like never want to be friends with that guy. And then the next one, like, wow, he is the nicest guy possible. And like, Wow, he's a huge asshole. It is. It seems to be this, this like the full spectrum that is that gives this very confusing. I'm very confused as to where I stand with Phil. Obviously, the last year has made me think less of him, but over time, I've known him to be a very flawed individual. I've never. He's not a role model, to quote his friend Charles Barkley. But uh, at the same time, he gives us so much entertainment that I find myself rooting for him. So you, you know, you've kind of touched on this already through the course of this conversation, but. Who is Phil Mickelson? If you were to describe, you know, to describe him to someone that didn't follow golf and, and, you know, and based on your experiences with him, who is he? Yeah, that, that, that is chapter one in the book. It's probably my favorite chapter. And it was so fun to put together just all those different voices. And I'm glad you came away with that, that sense of uncertainty and those mixed feelings. Cause that was really ultimately my goal. Like, I, I'm not here to tell you how to feel about Phil. I'm not trying to legislate the, the reader's experience. It's like, I'm just going to present this very complicated, very flawed, very interesting person and let the reader decide how they feel about them. And the fact that you're a little ambivalent, I think tells me that hopefully I succeeded and how to describe Phil. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of a kind. I mean, he's been a gift to all of us in the game and especially us typists, you know, think about how, when, when he arrived in the nineties, how boring his contemporaries were. I mean, that was the, the reign of terror of Marco Mira and Corey Pavin and Lee Jansen and Tom Lehman. I mean, can you imagine a more boring group of American quote unquote stars? And, you know, Phil, he's the life of the party. He's an enigma. He's an asshole. He's a charmer. He's a humanitarian. Uh, he's, he's just, a, he's just a larger than life character. And, uh, he has A plus comedic timing. Uh, he's got an extremely sharp needle. He's very smart. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. Uh, he's really fun to be around. He's really maddening. He's he's contradictory. He can be petty. He can be vindictive. He can be incredibly generous. He's obviously an incredibly talented golfer who has some fatal flaws. You know the the thrilling victories, the slapstick defeats. Uh, he's in. An incredibly gracious loser. He, he's a classy champion. He's all of those things. And that's why he's so fascinating. And it's absolutely incredible that there's never been a Phil Mickelson biography until now. And, you know, shout out to Bob Herrick, who wrote a really good book. It's a little different. You know, it, it's more about the rivalry and it's probably a little more Tiger than Phil. But to have gone all these years and had such a public life, you know, full of tragedy and triumph. Um, you think about Tiger, you know, he's, he's had some big events in his life, but otherwise is a pretty staid, boring person. Like he's a thrilling athlete and we all project a lot of emotion onto him, but he's, he's pretty fucking boring if we're honest about it. And as a human, 
um, with little spikes of, of, of wild interest, but you know, he's an introvert and, and Phil's an extrovert and he lives large and Tiger's always lived kind of small, you know, intensely private in his bubble, everyone around him, afraid to say a word and all of that. And, and Phil's had a, a, a different way of, of being, he's a lot more open. And it, when you think about all of the, the Tiger books, some really good, some really bad that, that, you know, way down my bookshelves that there's never been a, a Phil book until now. It's really incredible. And so that was part of why I wanted to write it because I knew there was so much there, um, good, bad, and otherwise. Well, it's, it's funny because everything you just said about his life and everything we've talked about to this point, almost none of it includes unbelievable accomplishments and close calls and just like ups yeah. and downs on the golf course. Like we have not talked about him on the golf course to this point, other than you touching on him <laughs> winning the PGA. And that is what is so fun about this book is like, I get totally, you get totally like enveloped into a, a part of the story that you totally forget about what's to come next. Like, you know, blah, 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 Troon happens and then bang, he hits a moving putt at the 2018 US Open. And then it's like, okay, Phil's career's like kind of coming to an end. And then, oh my, he wins the fucking PGA. Like it just, it just is relentless and nonstop. Yet, you know, at the same time, it's like he had all of this other off course stuff going on. And, and you know, you kind of talked about, you know, him reflecting that last paragraph of his statement, which yeah, I don't want to call it an apology because there wasn't a, really an apology there, but talking about, you know, maybe some deeper stuff going on. You also paint a picture in the book that, you know, a, a snippet in time as to looking into the early 2010s specifically of what the gambling losses potentially would have looked like. And it starts to paint a more clear picture of, uh, you know, the Billy Walters situation and how he ended up, how that story all unfolded. And I, I, I don't, I've never sought it out enough. I know that information's out there, but to see it all kind of spelled out like that helped again, again, in the whole context of what we're talking about with the Saudi stuff and all that, everything becomes more clear if you view it in, in that regard. But, you know, that's another excerpt of the story that you've released, but I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through some of the details of uh, what that financial situation and gambling situation maybe looks like now and then the, the, the period that you're reporting on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's no secret Phil loves to gamble. I mean, he's been open about it. He cashed that big Super Bowl bet and crowed about it, you know, when the Ravens won back at the turn of the century. And this this has followed Phil forever. And it's part of his legend. And I think it's part of why people like him. You know, he lives big. And um, what is he? He's number two on the all-time PGA Tour money list with $105 million or whatever it is. And we know he's made five or six or seven times that endorsement. So you would just assume he's sitting on an empire, right? Uh, um, he's like, it's like the dark night, just sitting on a pile of money and lighting it on fire for fun. But I think the reality is more complex and how much he's lost gambling on some level, it's personal to him. It's his money. Like, why should any of us care? He can do whatever he wants with it. And, you know, in general, I agree with that. Like I didn't get into Phil's private life really despite things that I'd heard or been told, because I, I do think that people are entitled to some privacy and you could say, well, the gambling would fall would that's part of his, his own life away from golf. But if he's threatening to blow up the entire world order of professional golf, because the Saudi money is so big and does he really need it or not? It becomes an, an interesting question. Like that's where what he's doing away from the golf course becomes the public domain, right? And especially um, if you are a spokesman for huge brands, and I think that is a big yeah. deal, right? If, if you want, yeah, that's part of it too. If you are taking your athletic prowess and taking it and be a spokesman on behalf of many other brands, 
that your character is, uh, speaks to your ability to do that, right? You cannot, you know, do certain things. And that's why companies have paused and stopped their relationship with him is they bought into something else. They looked past a lot of other flaws like all, all, a lot of us have. And he no longer was able to offer them what he was once able to offer them. And that's why things, right. end, you know, end up changing. Yeah, but I mean, in, in the context of Saudi Arabia, why does Phil need the money? Why is he so uh, drawn by the money? You, he doesn't, you would just assume he doesn't need the money. Like how, you know, go back to Gordon Gecko, how many boats can you ski behind and all that, that whole famous speech? Like, but if the money is not quite there, like we think it should be, maybe he does, maybe there is an element of necessity or desperation. And that would explain this whole Saudi seduction. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned Billy Walters and Phil got mixed up in that insider trading case. He was ultimately, you know, named as a relief defendant, which means he was not charged with wrongdoing, but he, he had to give back his ill-gotten gains, which is one of my favorite phrases of, you know, a million dollars to the government. Um, which he owed that, how he ended up in that was he was in a betting scheme of some kind with Billy Walters and also making side bets on his own that Billy did not want to buy in on and losing money on those. So owed Billy Walters money, who he gives him a tip, a stock tip that leads him to being in the insider trading thing. So it's not the gambling aspect of it leads to the insider trading. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is all in court papers and, and testimony. I mean, the amount of money that Phil was owing Billy Walters was into the millions of dollars. Like this is this is serious money. And so as part of the investigation into this insider trading case, you know, Phil was subject to like this forensic government audit of his finances and they scrutinized a four year period. And I had someone who had direct access to documents who you know, told me that Phil over this four-year period that was looked at 2010 to 14 claimed $40 million in gambling losses. So, you know, that'd be an average of $10 million a year that you're losing. And if your income is $40 million, and that's a fantastical number, but once you pay your taxes, and we all know Phil liked to bitch about the California taxes. and um, Which by, by, you know, my, probably, by my records, he has chosen to live in the state of California. <laughs> he's chosen, he's chosen. But so, you know, what are you left with 22 at that point? And then you've, you've got, you've got the Gulf stream, you've got the mansions, you have all, you know, the dozen people who are on your payroll from chefs to trainers to, I mean, Phil's got three coaches, putting short game swing coach. Like, you know, he's got a trainer, he's got all these people and it's a, it's a big lifestyle. I mean, he's always enjoyed conspicuous consumption. Like I don't know anyone else who got a T-Rex skull for their birthday. Right. Like they don't sell that down at the local mall, you know, all these things cost money. And so once you once you once you do that math, what's he left with out of that forty? He's got twelve or thirteen or ten. I don't know. And if you're losing ten of it, like, I mean, if you're in your peak earning years and you're barely breaking even because of the gambling losses, I mean, to me that would be a red flag. And so why this is important is because it's a direct line from there to now he's he's being lured by the big money jackpot of Saudi Arabia, and it helps explain all of this and. And, you know, that was even, you know, in the, the, the testimony on the Billy Walters trial, you know, the U.S. attorney, they made this point that, you know, the whole reason Phil sold those shares was to pay off his debt to Billy Walters. And you would think, well, couldn't Phil just like write him a check? Like he's sitting on all this money, but the government contended like he, he wanted to sell those shares just to pay off the, the debt. And so now you're starting to wonder, like, what's really going on? How much is it affecting Phil's life? How much is it affecting his, you know, his financial state? his decision-making. So it runs deep and it's really an important part of understanding who he is and the decisions he makes that ultimately culminates in this, in this, you know, self-immolation 
uh, with Saudi Arabia. Does Phil have a financial advisor, to your knowledge? Does he trust people, or does he have yes-men around him? Sponsored by KPMG for all these years. He's got to have, I mean, They don't do financial advice. I mean, it's a a company. They do a lot of different things. That's not their specialty. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Well, you would know that better than most. As a former employee of KPMG, yes. Yeah, I mean, he's got got access to everyone, right? I mean, He does have many, access to many, 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 many people who would be able to give him better financial advice than to gamble it all away. Well, I was going to say, I mean, your financial advisor is not going to advise you to bet, you know, X number of dollars on the Super Bowl. Like that's not good. That's that you're now transcending the advice of the trained professionals. But, um, you know, going back to your your, your point of uh, a few minutes ago, there is a lot of golf in this book. Yes. And it was really fun to bring that to life. And, you know, I was lucky to be on the ground for almost all of it because, you know, 1994 was my first year covering the PGA Tour. And that was Phil's second full season. And so... I've been tracking him his, you know, this whole journey to win the first major. And I was standing right by the green in 99 at Pinehurst when Payne Stewart broke his heart. And, you know, I was right there at Atlanta country club when, when, uh, you know, David Thomas made that ACE and all these things. Like I was part of this journey in my own way. And, you know, the, still the loudest noise I've ever heard on a golf course was, was Phil making that putt in 04 at Augusta walk off birdie to win the green jacket. It was so cathartic for, not only him, but all the people who cheered for him. And it might, might be my favorite part of the whole book is reliving Wingfoot, um, which is such a defining moment in, in Phil's career and, and in his life. And um, I love that chapter so much. And like when I was taping, I did the audio book, which was its own kind of fun challenge. And, you know, you have this producer in your ear and every time you mispronounce a word or whatever, you have to start over. And I would start reading too quickly when I'd get to parts that I thought were exciting, you know, because I knew it was coming. I couldn't wait to get there. And the Wingfoot chapter we had to do over and over because I couldn't wait to get to that 18th tee. And, you know, I brought in all these voices. You have everyone from Jack Nicholas to Andy North to Hale Irwin, you know, all these multiple U.S. Open champions critiquing and second guessing and offering their insight. You have Nick Faldo, you have, I mean, on down the list. And I love that part of the book so much. And I was standing right there in the fairway when that whole thing happened. I was with Rick Smith, who was Phil's swing coach at the time. And um, we're standing there as, as Phil's assessing his second shot. And it, it was it was such a, a freighted moment. And when Phil sliced that three iron and it hit that that Norway maple, and it was like, it was like the end of the natural, you know, when you, the, the sound of wonder boy hitting that home run, like it was the loudest crack I've ever heard on a golf course, that ball hitting the tree. And Rick Smith went just ashen. Like he knew his life had just changed dramatically and that he was probably fired before that ball even stopped rolling. And, and then uh, Mike Lupica, who's like very like in your face, New York columnist comes running up and he, he yells at Smith. He might, I can't even say it. He might not make five from there. And like, I still to this day don't know how Smith didn't just throttle him. And the whole thing just unspooled so quickly watching Phil walk up that fairway just he's wearing that yellow shirt and like that was his face went that color like all the all the blood drained out of him and he looks like he's he's sick he probably was feeling that way because you know after his third shot uh finds the bunker like he's done you know green sloping away from him there's no way he's getting that up and down and it was just like it's like watching this car crash in slow motion and then you know after he did his famous I'm an idiot press conference he retreated to the upstairs locker room at wingfoot and 
you know, I went up to try and find him and he's sitting there at his locker and he just has his head in his hands. He's just broken. I mean, I've, I've only seen one player who was ever that physically affected by something happened on the golf course. It was Lee Westwood at Turnberry, which people forget he three putted the last hole to miss the playoff that, that Stuart Sinkle only beat Tom Watson. And I followed Westwood into the locker room. He wound up laying on a bench and was hyperventilating. And I almost like went and called the medic. It was crazy. But Phil was just like, I mean, he was broken. And Amy came up and like, we're standing there just looking at him. like not, And, and she whispers to me like, I think he's in shock. And I think, I think that was actually a pretty good medical diagnosis. And um, I've been very close to a lot of these things. And, you know, after he won at, at Muirfield, I wound up drinking champagne with Phil and Amy in this, this private RNA party. And I walked into Butler cabin in, in 2010 um, with them briefly and the family celebrating. Like I've, I've had access. I, I've seen things that the, the cameras couldn't get. And it was fun to bring all of that to the reporting of this book and to recreating the thrilling victories and also the absolutely crushing defeats. And to my knowledge, this, the story of Phil and Bones uh, kind of parting, or not kind of, officially parting ways in 2017, the reasoning behind that has never fully been published until the, the second excerpt, excerpt that, you, uh, that you published from the book. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, and that, we just kind of teased at it in, in the excerpt. There's a lot more in the book about that whole disillusion. And that was always, it never felt right when they broke up. It was, you know, it was like, oh, it's our 20th anniversary. So it kind of made sense. And, um, it, you know, I guess, but the, no one ever answered why. And Bones was, was very, he played it close to, the, to his vest. Phil didn't want to talk about it. And you could... On, on TV, you know, Bones was pretty chipper talking about Phil, but that was, he had to, you know, he was kind of, it was performative. And, but if you were at tournaments, like, like I was, and, and you were as well, you could, and if you ever saw them interact, like they wouldn't even look at each other. There was just an awkwardness there with, and when Bones was making a few cameos for Justin Thomas, and they wound up in the same group as Phil and, and his brother, there was a, there was an edge there. You could feel it if you're out there watching and you know, maybe not the cameras might not have picked it up, but if, if you were, if you were, if you were paying attention. So I always knew there was something there, but I didn't know what it was. And, you know, Bones didn't want to be interviewed for this book, but he did want his story told. And so I had access to people very close to him and I was finally able to crack it open. And I guess we'll leave that as a little bit of a mystery because, um, you know, I don't want to be a tease, but by the book, um, it's, it's fantastic there. I'll, I'll just say <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a fine line between promoting a book and like just giving yeah. it all away. And people are like, oh, I feel I'm it's like having a big meal and now you're full. So I don't know. I, but yeah, the answer is it's, it's all in the book. And I think it's, it's fascinating. And it, you know, it, it's in the excerpt. It's not a spoiler. Like money was a, was a factor here. You know, they Bones and, and, and Phil, their relationship predated the FedEx Cup. And then the FedEx Cup came along and every player in caddy kind of had to figure out how to account for that money. And if you remember the first couple of years, it was deferred, it was deferred into their pension. So how do, what do you give a caddy if you win a million dollars, but you don't get the money right away. And so Phil and Bones had a, um, you know, basically an agreement on it, uh, on how they're going to, how are they going to handle it? And, but Phil never paid up. And over time, it turned into a significant amount of money, like almost a million dollars. And, you know, that's obviously introduced some tension into a relationship, even if you're friends, but 
Uh, I mean, if a guy owed me a million bucks or $900,000 and almost you couldn't, he doesn't really have any leverage per se. And he doesn't want to introduce a lot of awkwardness. So he was just kind of patiently waiting, but Phil never paid. And that was, uh, eventually he did after the, you know, as things were really going south in, in 2017 and, and their working relationship was deteriorating, you know, Phil gave him half the money or he gave him $400,000. But even that's weird. Like yeah. if you're acknowledging you owe this money, why not just make him whole? Why, why just give less than half? And then, but you add up all the other cash flow potential issues, and you maybe well, that's, yeah. that's what we're saying. <laughs> it's part of a larger thing here. And then, and then after Bones essentially fires Phil, um, you know, he, he sends him another 400K. It's like, okay, thank you. But, you know, by Bones math, it was supposed to be 900. So you're still getting shorted $100,000. It's like, I'm happy to get this money, it's a lot of money. I'm grateful, but you're still missing a little bit. You know, it's just like, it, again, it, it tells you something. And, that was what was satisfying for me in this book was to try and understand the real story because there's an official version and then there's a, then, then there's the truth and they're, they're not often aligned. And so just to drill down on any number of things and some, and not all of it is controversial. Like, I, you know, I love the part in the book when Phil goes to the, the minor league tryout with oh the Toledo mud hens and I, I kind of watched that from afar as it was playing out and I was kind of confused about the whole thing and it came and went real fast and it just seemed like a head scratcher. I had no idea how serious Phil was and he had hired Tom House, you know, this renowned major league baseball pitching coach to, to be his tutor and all that went into it. And it was just fun to peel back the layers and, and then call up some of the ball players who were there at the time. And, you know, all these things like how fast was this fastball? Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't very fast. So was, he topped out at 68, <laughs> which is absurd to think that he was going to get a one day call up with the Tigers, which was his goal. But, you know, what Tom House told me is that Phil was throwing 100 pitches a day in this, this mound he built in his backyard. And, and House was like, no major league baseball pitcher alive can throw 700 pitches a week. Like it's not humanly possible. And so Phil gets to Toledo and he's just got a dead arm. And like, I, I think Phil should be thankful that I'm kind of exonerated him for 20 years. Everyone's been like, what the hell? This guy had a 68 mile an hour fastball. Like they're throwing harder than that down at the little the local little league diamond. And, um, but now we have some, some context. And so um, I, you know, so many things like that. I mean, like reliving the, um, the 1991 Walker cup when, you know, I had totally forgotten, you know, Phil goes over to Ireland. Oh it's already overheated because the U S had just lost the Walker cup for the first time in ages. And Phil played really crappy in 89. And so he's got a lot to prove in this 91 Walker cup. He's the biggest star in the game. He's already won a pro tournament as an undergrad. Like he's legit one of the 10 best players in the world, including the professional ranks. And so this is a swan song for the Walker cup. And the, the European team is stacked. You know, they've, they've got, they've got Pudrig, they've got Paul McGinley. It's the first time it's played in Ireland. Um, there's, there's, a, you know, Andrew Coulter, there's just a lot of energy around this Walker cup. And so in a practice round, Phil hits it into the crowd. And afterwards he gets asked about it by um, a reporter. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to hit it there. The Irish women are not very attractive. <laughs> and it's just, an, I mean, it's funny. I've met some very beautiful Irish women. I don't know if I agree, but it's a funny thing it's to say. It's funny that Phil it's said definitely, it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it's absurd. definitely the wrong thing yeah. to say. And it became like an actual international incident. Like the U.S. team is driving away, and the the bus gets pulled over. Phil has to step off the bus and film an apology being demanded by the Irish consulate. And it's just like, it's so fucking funny. And um, and inevitably, 
His becomes the most important singles match. And on the last hole, he hits one of the greatest shots of his career under intense pressure. And it's just like, you know, this, this idea that, you know, Phil in this phone call to me, like was, was playing a rascal and maybe put his foot in his mouth. Like he's been doing that his whole life. You know, so one of my, one of my favorite parts of the book is the 1990 US amateur, oh, which, God. which he wins. Just get ready to get to there's this. Some, <laughs> yeah. There's so much great play by play there. And, you know, calling up these guys um, that he beaten, you know, in the quarterfinals, they haven't, they haven't talked about this in 25 years. Like they were so delighted to get the phone call and to relive it. And there was so many like incredibly fun Tell the Jeff Thomas like story. Yeah. All right. So, and that's another thing, like I'd heard, I'd heard this story many times in Phil's it, it's become part of his legend is it's second round. And Jeff Thomas was like this legendary New Jersey amateur who was quite a baller. You know, he, he wound up, he won the pub links, got to play in the masters. He, he won a, the, I think the Jersey state open many, many times. Like he, he was revered, but he was also this semi, um, well, I don't know. He was a very, very edgy character. And he was combative and he was a trash talker and he loved the gamesmanship. And he was living to play Phil. You know, Phil was this, this pretty boy who carried himself like a tour player, had the popped collar, has college coach on the bag, like just so punchable, right? Like who wouldn't want to beat Phil Mickelson back then? And, and so Jeff Thomas is just, he's ready to go. And, you know, the first hole, Thomas winds up having some issues on the hole. He, He's got, he leaves himself a 40 footer for par and, and Phil's got, he hits a great shot in there. He's got four feet for birdie and Phil just concedes the putt. He's like, just pick it up. And now, we, you know, four feet's not a gimme. I don't know what the make percentage is on tour. It's not hundred percent. And now he's put this incredible pressure on himself to make this putt, which he does. He wins the hole. And it's just such an alpha move. You know, I, I got Jeff Thomas's caddy to talk about it. John Garrity, who was the man on the scene for sports illustrated and you know, it was just, and you know, some Phil quotes from back in the day. Like, so again, this was just something I'd kind of heard about. I didn't know the details. I didn't really know that much about Jeff Thomas. And then you, you dig deep and Jeff Thomas turns out to be a fascinating character. I gave, I gave a lot of space to, and, you know, again, that moment tells you so much about the young Phil Mickelson. I mean, it's the cockiest thing you could ever do on a golf course. And then there's this quote, which I think is from the same USAM where I, this is the only quote I think I wrote down from the book, which is, I'm playing as good as I've ever played. Every facet of my game is 100% right now. Whoever I play, I'd be intimidated if I were them. Why shouldn't they be? As an amateur. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was so cocky. He still is. I mean, that, and that's part of the fun is, you know, it's one thing to think it. It's another to say it to, to a bunch of reporters. And um, that's Phil's thing. He can't help himself. He loves the sound of his own voice. And for someone who is so intensely private, if you've ever been in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a private setting with Phil, he talks at an extremely high volume and people are like craning their heads because they can hear it. And I mean, I've seen him in restaurants. I, I've sat at his table, you know, at the Bridges Golf Club and we're having brunch and he's, he will say very politically incorrect things and very racy things. And it's not quiet. Like it's part of his dichotomy. I mean, uh, he's... He just, he just loves the sound of his own voice and, you know, going back to, you know, circling back to your earlier question. I mean, I think that's part of the whole Saudi Arabia thing. Like he just couldn't help himself. He wanted, he wanted to talk about it and he's had an issue with saying the wrong thing forever. And it's just, but it's part of what's fun. I mean, you know, talking about Tiger's inferior equipment and I get into that in the book, but he wasn't wrong. You know, Tiger was not maxing out his specs because he wanted control. 
He wanted to be able to shape the ball. He wanted maximum spin because then he was good enough to take the spin off when he wanted to. But, you know, that was the era where you know, high launch, low spin was really the, the, um, the holy grail of distance. And so inferior was an interesting, interesting quote, but certainly Tiger's gear was not maxed out. I mean, Phil wasn't wrong, but it was just such an uppity thing to say when he had zero major championship victories and Tiger had yeah. eight and Tiger was beating him like a drum. And so, um, but you got to love that he said it. And it was, I was, I remember what happened. Like it, I remember Pebble Beach, everyone swarmed around him because that's when the story broke and it was great. It was fun. And, and Tiger loved, tortured him about it. And um, again, Phil just says it. He's got no sensory, has no governor. And an entertainer. while that's created controversy, it's also part of his brand because it's, it's like he lives on the edge and he gives us something to talk about and something to write about. And it's part of who he is. And I mean, God love him. He's an entertainer. Well, I, I wrote down about 15 or 20 stories. I wasn't sure how talkative you'd be today, but so I didn't know how many of these we'd get to. So for those, I'm going to ask you to spoil some, but for those listening, there's for everyone he spoils, there's five more that we will, won't get to today. But one of my favorites is the, uh, the Tom Candiotti story uh, about placing bets. I'm wondering if you could tell that one. So Candiotti was a big league baseball player. He retired. He's living in, in Scottsdale and playing out of Whisper Rock. And, and when Phil was doing the same. And so on the opening day of NFL, you know, around the turn of the century, Phil uh, gets like eight or 10 dudes. They pile into, into, into the Gulf Stream. They fly to Vegas. They get up really early, you know, before the games. They roll up to, I think, is a Bellagio. And they've got this suite set up where there's a TV for each game which, you know, turn of the century, that yeah. was, that was kind of unique. Right. And there's this huge breakfast spread. So then they go down to the sports book and Phil had actually like written out a tip sheet for each guy, <laughs> like his take on each game, which is hilarious and put a lot of thought into it. And so they go down to the sports book to place their bets and people are kind of milling around. Like they don't know what, what's the protocol, you know, Phil's the host. So we, we should let him go first. Right. As a showing of whatever respect. And Phil's like, no, no, you guys go ahead. Cause when I place my bets, it might move the line. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an unbelievable thing to say, and it's probably true. And it tells you like how deep the waters swim that he swims in. So they, they all place their bets. And Candiotti's like, he's with Jason Kidd's there too, the basketball player. And they're like, God, how much should we bet? I don't know. Like, I'll bet a thousand dollars. I don't want Phil to think I'm a pussy, but you know, that like that was a lot of money. Like, oh my God, a thousand dollars a game. Anyway, Phil's going a lot deeper than that. So they go back up to the suite. And I mean, it just sounds like, like the ultimate, like it's a frat party with an unlimited budget that they, they're tossing a football around. They're tackling each other on the couches. Like, it's just, I mean, it's really funny to imagine. And so now the games start and then, you know, according to Candy, like things get serious and Phil's like locked in. He's watching whatever eight games at once. Um, Phil sweeps every game. He wins every bet. And according to Candy, he's up over a million dollars. That's in three hours, right? Like that, that is, I mean, that's, you know, whatever, 2001 money. That, that's, a, and, and then, and, and Phil does great in the afternoon too. So he's, he's up well over a million bucks in one day of betting. But then before they head to the airport, he's like, let's play some Baccarat. And, and he gave a lot of it back. And I mean, Candy Hunter said, we need like a, a lasso to get him out of there. And I mean, and they get in the, in the plane and they fly home. They weren't even gone for a night. Like it's pretty epic. Sounds like fun, right? I mean, there, there's a great Charles Barkley quote where, you know, he's comparing Tiger and Phil, you know, it's late in the book. And obviously in this current moment, it, it takes on a slightly different feeling. But, you know, he said, listen, no one around Tiger ever has fun. Everybody's uptight. Everybody's afraid to say the wrong thing. He's like oppressed by his talent. He's oppressed by the fame. 
I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't have it in front of me. And he, but he's like, with Phil, everybody's laughing, everybody's smiling. You hang out with Phil, you're guaranteed to have a good time. And like, he's had a joyful life and that's why he's lasted this long. And, and Barkley's one of the few guys who's really spent a lot of time with both, both dudes. Cause you know, they, there's not a lot of overlap in their crowds. And so I thought that was incredibly insightful. And like how fun, like, that sounds like fun. I would love to get on someone's plane and go to Vegas and have a day like that. Like who wouldn't, you know, like Phil's, He's, he brings people together. He's got a huge social circle, you know, where, where Tiger's an introvert and a loner, you know, Phil is an extrovert and he, he thrives on, on the juice. And, you know, I saw him at the, the bar at the Masson club years ago. And I mean, he's holding court with 20 dudes. Like, it, it looked like an organized, like, you know, speaker series, but he's just talking shit and that's who he is. And that's part of the fun of Phil. And uh, yeah, that, that candy audio story is I love that. It might move the line. That's my favorite. You know, it's funny is, I, I, my jaw honestly dropped a little bit when I got to a certain part of the book when, uh, and I was playing golf this weekend and I was talking to somebody about the book and they go, you know, I heard a story about Phil a few years back about blow. And I knew exactly one of two stories of what they were going to. Cause everyone thinks they had this inside track on these two Phil stories from back in the day. And you yeah. address both of them head on. And I was like, oh my God, he's about to confirm him. But it ends up not, maybe not necessarily being the case. I wonder if you could tell those stories. Well, <laughs> I got so much fill in my brain. Which two stories are you talking about? Let me just make sure the I know Black what you're talking Baby about. Black Baby and the MJ oh. uh, Amy story. Oh yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, th this is interesting. You know, I refute both of these rumors and I, I thought it was important to address from the standpoint that to understand that there's been this stuff swirling around Phil forever. I mean, this stuff goes back to the early 2000s. And this was, I got sucked into it because people thought I was doing this investigation and I had Phil's like PR guy come up to me. He's like in my face about it. I said, that's not me. I don't even think that's Sports Illustrated, but everyone in the golf media got sucked into this in one, either you were investigating it or people thought you were. Um, it was this oddly specific rumor that Phil had this love child who had been fathered during the Memorial tournament. And the, the, supposedly the mom worked at the, uh, the first tee in Columbus and that she was African-American. And it was so hyper-specific that Pharrell Evans, who was a Sports Illustrated reporter back in those days, he knew the people at the first tee of Columbus. And there was one young woman who happened to be black. And so he called her up and, and said, this is what I've heard. And she's like, it's not true. You know, I met Phil once at the Memorial. We never slept together. There's no baby, but this lived on the internet for a decade and, and Phil and his people ultimately filed a lawsuit trying to scrub some of these, um, some of these comments and trying to unmask this anonymous troll who was posting it. They eventually did re find out this person's identity and, you know, I, I believe it's 100% false, but it lived for a decade. And to the point that some, some respected members of the mainstream golf press had to ask Phil about it. And it's one of the most amazing parts of the book when I, I don't want to spoil it for people when they read it, but this reporter named John Hawkins, who was at golf world slash golf digest asks Phil about this rumor and, and Phil just explodes. And it, it tells you that to me, first of all, it's kind of impressive that he just hit, he took it on head on, but the, the strain and the stress that he was under, right? Like that, uh, because he, they knew about it and they heard about it. And, um, and then again, it's, 
it's the ultimate thing in, in golf, right? Oh, it's not just that he has an illegitimate baby. It's a black baby, right? Like it's so taboo. That's the sport that we're in. Right. And, and so it kind of plays into this, this Amy Mickelson rumor about that. She had a fling with Michael Jordan, you know, same thing. It, it wasn't Christian Leitner, you know, it had to be Michael Jordan. And there was a time, and I remember this vividly, if you typed Amy Mickelson into the Google search box, the first thing that autofilled was Michael Jordan. And it became such a thing that Deadspin wrote a whole story about it. And again, they refuted it. And Amy, to her everlasting credit, you know, she would joke about it. I mean, she said it to me, have you heard about me and Michael? And so I wanted to tell this story that like, this is the stuff they've had to deal with. There is a downside to being you know, to the, their level of fame. I think theirs has always been the most scrutinized marriage and golf. And, you know, there's a certain amount of pressure and, and external stuff that that's come with that. And, you know, I think they've always handled it with a lot of grace and Amy, you know, is one of the most beloved figures in the game. And she's been an incredible ambassador for Phil. I mean, you know, I make this point in the book, like Tiger speaks to the media after 99.999% of his rounds. And if he ever doesn't, he gets killed for it. Um, or if he says the wrong thing, like, you know, he was kind of snippy with what Bill McAtee back in the day when the bone popped out or, you know, it's commented on, oh, Tiger was kind of mean on TV, like, oh, tisk tisk. But he's a pro. He accept, you know, he accepts the obligations of superstardom, which is, you know, you got to talk to the press. We're helping to pay the bills. We're, we are the, we are the people who represent the fans. And, um, and so, and Tiger, I give a massive amount of credit for that. You know, Phil's not that way. If he plays bad, he'll just stomp off, and um, which reveals a little something about his character as well. But he never got killed for it because he had Amy, he had Bones, he had Rick Smith, Butch Harmon, Dave Pels, uh, you know, Dave Stockton. Uh, you can go on down the list of people around him who were very agreeable, great storytellers, had a lot of insight. And so um, it was like, all right, fine, Phil, take off because, you know, Amy's right here and she's super cheerful and she'll tell us, you know, what really happened. And so um, it's, it's part of that dichotomy between Tiger and Phil. You know, Tiger had Steve Williams, who, as we all know, was a dick and Elon Nordegren, who never said a word to anybody. And uh, Hank Haney, who was mindful that Butch Harmon had gotten too big of a media profile and got fired. So even though Hank's a smart guy with a lot to say, he didn't really want to be quoted. And and so there was, it was much harder for reporters to do their job. And there was more like unhappiness with Tigers, oh, Steinberg, Dr. No, like all this stuff. And so it's just part of that the polarity why, you know, Tiger and his people were always, they hated how adoring the press was to Phil. And part of it was because Phil, when he was in a good mood, um, was extra charming and the people around him helped us do our jobs. And so um, that's just another kind of piece of the puzzle. But yeah, so... You know, I'm sure some people will be like, oh, why did you put that in the book? It, it's too salacious, but I'm very careful in refuting it's it. A, it's the opposite um, of salacious, I, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're shooting it down. But as you said, this is swirled around Phil and Amy, uh, mostly Phil, for 20 years. And it is something that that fans hear and know and have taken as like um, gospel. And so I think I was doing them a favor by examining it, pointing out the hypocrisy, and ultimately refuting it. But also, you know, among all the stories we, we've had here, but there's also, you know, I want you to tell the story as much as you can of the the Northbrook family and, and how, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum of so many Phil stories we hear, you know, there's also this guy. The, the, it's really not a Phil. It's much more of a Mickelson family story there. But uh, why don't you tell us about that one? Yeah. 
I enjoyed writing about all of Phil's philanthropy and all his random acts of kindness. And he's done, he's touched a lot of people in a really impactful way. And like, I went to this thing they call Start Smart. God, this is 15 years ago. He was, I think it was, it was either 04 or, uh, yeah, it must've been 04. He was like the golf magazine player of the year. And they asked me to go write a story and Phil, Phil didn't want to talk. He was too busy. So I just crashed this. No, no, I think that was 2010 when he won the masters. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is Phil was, I couldn't get an interview with him. So I heard about this thing. So I just showed up unannounced and, you know, 2000 kids get disgorged by these school buses and that they're bust in from all the low income and economically disadvantaged neighborhoods around San Diego County. And they, you know, the Mickelson family, they take over this target and every kid gets a backpack and school supplies and shoes and clothes and Amy and Phil are there. Like Amy's trying on shoes for girls and Phil's running around doing this. And like at one point he's like, come here, here come here. And so we escaped into the manager's office and ate some donuts. Cause like, it's, it's, there's a lot happening. And at the end of it, Phil just whips out his, you know, his credit card and hands it to the cashier and whatever, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars it is. And, you know, he doesn't have to do that. Like there's many other examples of that, but the Northbrook family, this was, um, and talking to a lot of people around San Diego, this guy's name came up a few times. So I found him and they were kind of, Mickelson adjacent, you know, he had some kids that were the Mickelsons, the same age as the Mickelson kids. And they were on some of the same soccer teams and some of the same dance recitals. He said, I didn't really know Phil. Like he recognized me. He'd kind of give me a nod, you know, kind of dad to dad. I'm not sure he even knew my first name, but um, you know, we were in each other's orbit occasionally. This guy, Eric Northbrook, you know, he's riding motorcycles down in, in Mexico on just on vacation with buddies, has a horrible crash. He's paralyzed from the chest down. And so he gets flown into this um, this hospital in Colorado and he's there for three months, to, you know, doing physical therapy and, and kind of adjusting to his new reality and comes back home and Phil and Amy have completely retrofitted his house with elevators and ramps and special bathrooms. And, you know, he doesn't know exactly how much it costs. He was guessing a quarter million dollars, something like that. And again, it was just, a, it was just an act of kindness to a family that the Mickelsons knew very casually. And, and so, and then this guy was so inspired and so grateful that he, he founded this organization called Head North where he raises money and donates it to other people who've had catastrophic spinal cord injuries around San Diego. And he's helped 600 families. They've raised millions of dollars. And he's like, I'm just paying it forward because of what Phil did to me. And it's a really moving story. And there's, there's a dozen of those in this book. And, you know, that's why, when people have said, oh, is this like a takedown of Phil? Are you out to get him? It's like, no, not at all. I'm, I'm trying to tell the, the totality of who he is. And he's done a lot of wonderful things for people. And it's all in the book. And I celebrate it. And I tip my cap to him. And, but there's also some messiness. And there's some controversy. And that's in the book, too. That's why I think the, the kind of rumor, the sentiment around the golf media world was like, hey, this book is coming out. And it's going to be very not good for Phil. And I did not get that impression from reading it personally. Some other people may walk away differently from it. I know you mentioned in there that Phil was nervous about the book. Uh, you know, I think it, it, uh, it does tell, tell a story, I think. And I, I don't think there's anything in there that, uh, that uh, I would qualify necessarily as really not good for Phil. But I'm going to ask for one more story and I'm going to give it just a little bit of example of all the things we're going to leave on the cutting room floor, which is uh, listening to the AFC championship live during a, uh, a, a professional event Gary McCord gambling story, um, a Jimmy Walker gambling story, some stuff with Rick Riley, a bearing point story. That's fantastic. The beer bash. We're leaving all those on the table. So please do uh, go check out the book. But uh, 2000 President's Cup, Tom Lehman story uh, from the book. You got to tell that one and we will let you out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, 
again, trying to understand like, where does the sports betting fit into Phil's life? And I got a lot of really funny stories. And so lame, they're paired together in the president's cup and, you know, it's better ball and Phil's really struggling and layman's just absolutely carrying him on the front nine and feels like, don't worry, I'm going to show up. I got you partner. And they're in this part, come to this part three. It's a terrible shot. It's buried under the lip. He's out of the hole. So Phil walks like, you know, way off the green and he's kind of sitting on this tree stump and it looks like he's got his head in his hands. And layman's like, Oh man, he's really, he's really feeling it. Poor guy's struggling. You know, he's over there giving himself a pep talk and he's just marinating in the self-loathing. And so layman goes over there to say, you know, Hey, keep your chin up partner. And Phil's got like his phone out and he's checking the football scores. And layman's like, Oh brother, are you kidding me? And uh, it's so funny. I mean, it's only the president's cup. It's not the Ryder cup, but still like you would think that he might be slightly more focused on the task at hand, but you know, if <laughs> gotta gotta watch that line and, and see how it's moving and all those things so it's fantastic um, but that that's i mean it's a funny story and it, it it tells you something about phil and you know when layman told it to me he was cracking up it wasn't like he's was right. mad about it he just he was an utter disbelief all right well where can people where's the best place people can uh can get the book and uh and through what avenues can they do so well i you know i always see your local independent bookstore which um but of course it's on amazon it's pretty much everywhere um, release date is May 17th. So if you go to Amazon, they'll show you the, um, whatever their pre-order price is, but the, on the actual 17th, it'll drop to their normal what 30 or 40% off. And I'm actually, I'm going to, I'll tweet out a link, but there's, there's a little, um, mom and pop bookstore here in Carmel, California, and we're selling books to them. If, if you do want to support a local Indian, and you don't have one in your hometown and they'll have signed books and I can personalize them and that sort of thing. So that, that'll, I'll probably just pin that on my, on my Twitter, but, um, you know, I would say also the audiobook's really fun. Like I've gotten into audiobooks myself and I read it. It took, took me four days and they were going to hire some Broadway actor to do it, who I'm sure does not know how to pronounce Jose Maria Olazabal and would not really be as invested in the material. And like, you know, I know where the jokes are. I can set them up and I know the dramatic tension. And um, so I, I, the audiobook to me is really fun if, um, if you're into that sort of thing. But, you know, whatever check it out of your library I, I don't care like and this has actually been a funny thing i just wanted people said oh you know when these extra drop you're just trying to sell books well i mean as a writer whenever you write something you want people to read that i think every writer on the planet would say that and for them to read it they kind of have to buy it i don't know but by all means if you can get a pirated copy and make, make have your buddy buy it and he can make xeroxes for the whole book club i don't care i just want people to read it because I put, you know, two years of my life into it and I'm really proud of it. And I think it's really fun. So, well, um, I can attest to that as anyway. well. And, uh, on behalf of our listeners, thank you again for, for taking an hour plus now with us to, to share some stories from it and uh, talk about the process and all of this was, this was fantastic. So thanks again, Alan. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a while. You never write, you never call, but I'm glad I'm back. I'm back in the good graces of the Nolan. You've always been in good graces. Things just get very busy <laughs> and you know how it is. So I know, I know you're I'm a busy just man yourself. So Thanks again, uh, everyone, and please go do check out the book, and we'll do it again uh, sometime soon, bud. All right, thanks, Chris. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.